welcome to the Healthy Gospel Church podcast, a podcast where we explore all aspects of church life while also shining a spotlight on good practice in your local church. My name is David Meredith, I'm the Mission Director for the Free Church of Scotland based in Edinburgh and I'll be your host. If you like what you hear, then please like, share and subscribe. Spread the news. Well, my guest today is Stephen Neal. I have never met Stephen in the flesh, but he is in flesh before me on the screen. And he is the minister of Oldham Bethel Church. Uh, Stephen, welcome. Tell us where Oldham is. Yeah, Oldham is both a town and a borough uh, to the northeast of Manchester. It's part of the greater Manchester city region. Um, and we are basically your last post in Lancashire before you get into Yorkshire. Okay, in, in England, would they refer to your places up north? People down south refer to us as up north, and people further north of us say we're down south, so it depends who you ask. Okay, I guess from our perspective, you're nowhere near north if you live in in, right. in Wick or, or, or John O'Groats or, or something like that. Um, Stephen, great to have you on the podcast. One of the reasons that we want to chat to you is that you're ministering into a very different demographic. Can you tell us a little bit about Oldham, a little bit about the history of your church? Is it a plan? Is it a revitalization or a bit of both? Yeah, so our church is an older church. It was planted in the 1930s. Uh, there were two Pentecostal brothers who went around planting Bethel churches, of which ours was one. So it started its life as a tent mission in the town, uh, then they planted a church out of that tent mission. And then over its lifetime, since the 1930s, it's gone from being Pentecostal to being sort of charismatic y, charismatic reformed, then non charismatic and reformed, and then sort of Baptistic and reformed. So it's kind of been on a bit of a trajectory. Okay. What was the high point of the church? Was it in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s? It's now, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, modesty is just oozing out of you. Yeah, no, I, I don't know is, is a short answer. Um, I, th- I think certainly the recent history I'm aware of, so there's a bit of a gap in my knowledge. I know where it began in, in the 30s. Then I've got a bit of a gap in my knowledge up to about the 60s. And then from the 60s, it really has never been much bigger than we are now. Um, and it, yeah, over, over since the 60s, it's kind of, like I say, gone on that trajectory from being Pentecostal to charismatic to reformed to sort of more more overtly baptistically reformed. Yeah. How did you come to be there or to pick it up? And what state was it in when you got there? Yeah, so I was at a church in Manchester, um, just an ordinary member there. I wasn't looking to go into ministry at that time either. Um, And the minister who was in post before me at Bethel, he was retiring. And the minister of the church I was in dispatched a load of us up to help with preaching and teaching and, and that sort of thing as he was transitioning out into retirement. And I was just one of a number of people sent up to help fill the pulpit. Um, And I'm sure... I've had this discussion a number of times with people. I'm sure at some point there must have been a discussion <laughs> that I don't remember about whether I ever had designs on ministry, whether I'd done theological training, which I'd, I had already done. Um, but I wasn't looking into ministry at the time. Um, I just merrily went up. I liked preaching. I liked serving the churches. I was I glad to do it. So I liked to go. 
Um, we got on well with the people there. They seem to get on well with us. And next thing I know, they're calling me out the blue and asking if I want a job. So um, it was very organic and unexpected on the whole, really. Do you think your theological training trained you for the job you ended up doing? No. Why not? Because it was rubbish. <laughs> Clearly wasn't at Edinburgh Theological Seminary, so... Uh, uh, n- nowhere nearly what, so good. What, what, what made it rubbish? What were the good points? What were the bad points? It was an academic master's degree in theology. Um, now, I, I think the safest way to describe it, and I think this explains the whole problem, and actually a problem with a lot of theological education, I think, in the UK anyway, is... I, I did a history and politics undergraduate degree, um, and I, I did stuff on Northern Ireland. That was my my area of interest. Now, when I got to my master's degree, and in between that, I'd done a religious studies, PGCE as well, so I became a teacher. Um, but all I did from my undergraduate history and politics degree into my master's degree in theology is swap over the books I was reading. Mm. And we essentially did the same thing. And I was using the same skills and I was approaching things in the same way. And I was doing all right in both of those. And it just struck me. Now, it was very academic and that was fine. I I was not going into it particularly with designs on ministry at the time. I was looking for an academic course at the time. So I'm not having a go at the college for doing it that way. It was doing what I was expecting it to do at the time. But as far as ministry goes... I have not found it that useful for ministry. Right. Okay, let's talk a little bit about your your context. I understand that your church is in a pretty, you know, let's say it's not it's not suburbia. It's pretty working class, pretty ordinary. Probably the the demographic demographic the church in the UK is least effective at reaching. Is that a fair analysis? Yes. I think that is fair. Um, so the, the area of Oldham that we're in is a place called Glodic. Now, in Glodic, um, we are predominantly South Asian and Pakistani and Bangladeshi. So our area is over 90% South Asian and, and practicing Muslim. So that that is our immediate area. But then a few hundred yards away from the church building is a big park called Alexandra Park, and the other side of that is a predominantly white working-class council estate. And then if you just go up the hill from our church, then you're on the tram and you're practically in the town centre at that point. So we're on the edge of these three areas, um, and Oldham is a very, very segregated town. So you'll have predominantly white areas and predominantly South Asian areas, and never shall the two meet. Uh, And it's quite interesting. Uh, We have a lot of contact with South Asians in our community. We have a lot of them coming into our church for a whole host of different things that we do. Uh, And they have all noticed how multicultural everything is in our church. I mean, we are probably, and and I don't don't say this with great pride or with any um, arrogance attached, it's just what the Lord's given us, but we are probably the most multicultural thing that exists in Oldham at the moment. Yeah, that's a great testimony. Have you had seen any conversions or spiritual work amongst the South Asians? South Asian Muslims must be one of the toughest demographics to crack with the gospel. 
Yeah, so we we do a lot of work with them. We tell them the gospel. I've got an imam friend who can tell me the gospel as, as clearly as another gospel minister can. Uh, he knows it. He, he understands it. He's heard it from us a number of times. But in truth, we we haven't seen any fruit that we're aware of amongst Pakistanis and Bangladeshis. What we have seen is a is a warning in various ways to things. So in in a way that we would have been viewed as suspicious, in a way that people wouldn't have engaged with us in the past, they now do. So that's been positive and encouraging. In understanding, people have grown. Um, in understanding the gospel, knowing the gospel. Um, but our view on the whole is that the people most likely to convert from the South Asian community are likely to be second and third generation um, British Muslims. And it's most likely that they are going to convert not with us, or if they do, it will be quietly with us, but they won't come and join our church in membership. I strongly suspect what will happen is we are just laying some groundwork, laying some seeds and maybe when they go away to university, or they get a job in another area where people don't know them and they engage with Christians there and they hear the gospel afresh. You know, our hope is that the groundwork we've laid and the the discussions we've had will all be there, will all be in the back of their mind. And maybe we'll hear of people converting down the track totally outside of our community and not in any way to the benefit of our little church, but to the benefit of somewhere else and, and to the glory of God ultimately. Yeah, because there's enormous societal pressure, isn't there, within the Pakistani Muslim community to stay there? Yeah, and to be honest, you get that all over the place. But yeah, it, it's it's a strong pull for for one thing. But also, even aside from that, I just think the community we often offer in response to it is rubbish. I mean, we they they've got a brilliant family network they've got brilliant friends networks they are in and out of each other's homes all the time and what do we offer them you know a meeting on a sunday once a week and a vote in a members meeting i mean it's not it's hardly going to draw them in is it i'm i'm so glad you mentioned that because i don't think folk appreciate that the quality of community you know that they get from their families and wider networks is phenomenal um uh so, if you're witnessing to South Asian Muslims, okay, we all know that the word Allah, Allah means God. Would you begin by talking about the similarities between the God of the Bible and their view of Allah, or would you talk about the differences? It depends on the context. So we, we do a, a monthly dialogue evening where an imam will bring 30 or 40 Muslims down to our church every month, or we'll go up to the mosque with um, our members and we will have a, a dialogue, effectively. We'll pick a topic, I'll present for 10 minutes, I'll present the gospel through whatever the topic is. He will present for 10 minutes the Muslim view of that. We'll have Q&A after each of those. In those sorts of meetings, I tend to be big on presenting the differences because the whole thing that makes us different compared to other things going on in the town is... Most of the place is all, it's kind of a hand-holding exercise, really, and a, a very much a, a liberal, um, let's all try and agree. Um, and I'm, I'm not saying there's no legs in ever doing that, but for us, we're saying, look, we want to be able to disagree and provide a space for us to disagree and actually hear what each other think without falling out with each other. And so we make sure we eat afterwards as well, just so that we can carry on talking. But in that scenario, I'd emphasize the differences. But if I was out in the community and I was just, I don't know, sat at the barbers or something and with some Muslims, I'd probably start more with some of the similarities. 
actually the place I would start would be with the doctrine of hell and judgment, because we all agree with it. We all know it's coming and we can basically get down to brass tacks and say, look, none of us want God's judgment. None of us want to go to hell. And therefore, why don't we talk about what our respective books say about how we avoid that, how we get to where we do want to go. And so I would, I would start with that. Yeah, that's interesting that you would. And do you find that they respect that candid, honest conversation about the differences rather than to try and, you know, weld the two systems together? Yeah, 100%. I mean, they they know we think differently, and so it doesn't really make a lot of sense in pretending we don't. And I think generally you just get a much better, much more fruitful conversation when you, when you acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you're... Ministering to this predominantly working class American friends called blue collar community, is there any way in which ministry in that context looks different to suburbia? Yeah, it, in some ways it does. In some ways it doesn't. So if you turned up to our church on Sunday and you looked at what we were doing, it wouldn't look vastly different to any other church that you go to. You know, we sing, we pray, we read the Bible, we preach. You know, in those ways, it's all relatively normal um in terms of our outreach it's different i guess because there's a lot of need on our doorstep which we can tap into and we can you know we run sort of food distributions we run um homeless drop-in we run uh english classes because those are the needs on our doorstep that we can meet but they're also allow us to create spaces where unbelievers can come in and teach you're not going to get a lot of english classes going on in a middle-class white village because there's no one there to teach English. So in, in that sense, it's different. Okay, well, tell me about your, your preaching. Would it be 10 minutes simple stuff or would you acknowledge that people are adults? And I, I do acknowledge a, people are adults, yeah. Give them a little bit more meat and not just an extended I kid story. I'm, I'm not an Anglican, mate. We don't do homilies. Um, <laughs> we, we do, yeah, we're 40-minute sermons normally um i don't know what to tell you i mean i I have a passage i preach it i i i believe in being straightforward when you preach i believe okay is it well folks say listen working class folk have got a 10 minute concentration um window you're giving them 40 minutes i forget it they've switched off after five well that isn't my experience is it and i think uh i think that's a very patronizing condescending attitude towards working class people isn't it amen yeah, yeah. But is that an attitude which you think is out there? Yeah, look, there are all sorts of people with all sorts of views on how to do ministry, an awful lot of them not actually in my community. Um, and so people can have their views, can't they? What I've found is 40-minute um, sermons are fine for our people. When I preach for 40 minutes, I have people coming up to me afterwards and talking to me about the stuff we've said. They've clearly understood it. They've clearly engaged with it. They've clearly applied it to themselves. Actually, one one of the things I was wary of doing was forcing people to do too much reading in our community because it's not a big reading culture yeah, at all. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was my bit, my bigger concern. Um, and actually, Mark Dever, who who challenged me quite <laughs> quite directly about it, and said, "You don't have to settle for that." You know, I went to a place once where it, it wasn't a reading community. He said, and um, I just decided I wasn't going to accept that, and I kept giving out books. And eventually, we found people were reading them. So I thought, well, okay, fair enough. I'll give it a go. And 
lo and behold, people did. So it's just not true that people don't read. It's not true that people don't listen. I think what they do is they've got a more direct way of telling you you were rubbish if you were no good. And they've got a more direct way of sticking your book in the bin if they didn't think it was any any good. And I think that's fair enough, to be honest with you. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, worship Wars, Stephen, um, is that a thing down your way or... I, I guess I guess you sing the the whole range, Sam's hymns and spiritual songs. We do. Um it's yeah, not it's not really been a big issue for us, to be honest with you. Um we, we sing what we sing. We try and sing stuff that is serving the word. So the way our the way our liturgy, if you like, runs is we we preach at the front end of our services. You okay. Um, so we will normally stand up might do a reading, welcome everybody. Uh, and then we'll pretty quickly get into the word, read the word, preach the word. And then thereafter, everything we do in our service is really a response to the word. So we try and pick songs, whatever they are, and whatever their form they take that feed into what we've been looking at in the service. And, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's all supposed to be reflective. So we have open prayer in our church as well, rather than led prayer on the whole. And again, we direct people's prayers to say, this is what we've heard from the word this morning. Let's pray things in line with that. So that's that's kind of how we do it. Yeah. Do you ever sing psalms? We don't sing metrical psalms, no. Um, no, no, psalms in any form. Um well, you say in any form. I mean, we we do sing psalms that somebody has adjusted. A thousand and, and reasons, I guess, is is, is a but, psalm, you know. And a, but no, yeah. we don't. We don't. And we, to be honest, it's something maybe we we should do, but um, we, we don't so much. No. Yeah. Do you think that's that's a weakness? I mean, I'm not. I'm not trying to poke the bear here. I'm just trying to, <laughs> you know, or poke the bear too much. Um, you know, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We in, in the Free Church of Scotland, I don't know if you know you know our history, were for many years exclusive psalmody. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we changed our policies since 2010, and now we do psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But it seems to me that most of evangelicalism is exclusive hymnody. Um, what, do you, what do you think about that? No, I, I think that's a fair point. Um, and I... Yeah, I I hear it. Um, I don't I don't really have a great defence against it because I I think it is valid. I don't think evangelicals sing the psalms in the way they should. Uh, I think if if I'm permitted to say so, I think the mistake of the free church in the past was that they didn't recognise hymnody or anything else. And I I think scripture suggests that actually there are other things we can sing beyond the psalms but i think to neglect the psalms is foolish so i i don't have a defense i just am aware we don't probably do that as much as we ought yep although uh, in my defense the church sang hymns almost exclusively for 99.9 percent of history which church? Your church? No, no, the, the church the, in general, the, the worldwide church from the, the Church of the sure. Fathers. Um, you know. Sure, I think that depending. So, on... I mean, I, th- I think we agree. I mean, what, what I'm trying to say is, and what I'm trying to get in a a bigger discussion over wider evangelicalism is, I'd love folk to sing the Psalms more. Mm. Um, I wonder whether, and I, I'm only thinking aloud is whether our view of the covenants impacts on how much we are likely to sing the Psalms as what may be viewed as an old covenant hymn book, if you like, as opposed to um, 
New Covenant hymns. I just wonder whether that impacts on people's Okay, uh, yeah. Views. Okay. I don't know, and I haven't really thought about it that much, but I, I wonder whether that has an impact. Uh-huh. Are there two covenants? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's an old one and a new one. Okay, so let's, 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 since we're warming up here, uh, Ten Commandments, Old Covenant or New Covenant? Old Covenant. Okay, so they've now been relegated to the Ten Suggestions, yeah? Uh, no. No, they were binding as law. So they're binding on New Covenant people? I think they are prophetic. Uh, I think they take on a prophetic function now, but I would say in the Old Covenant, what you had was they were the summary of Israel's law, which has been fulfilled in Christ. But I think if you look in the New Covenant, it's pretty clear they're all reaffirmed in some way, shape or form. So ultimately, if you want to take them as from the Ten Commandments, well, I can point you to New Covenant versions of them, if you like, where they still all apply, don't they? Okay, so I'm talking to a Sabbatarian here, yeah? Um... In, a, in some form, I suppose. Depends what you mean not, by that. For folk are not seeing my wide, expansive, open, warm face at this point, you know. Um, yeah, I, I think Sabbatarianism is, is a thing that the Lord's Day is special, holy, separate. So I believe yeah. I do believe there's a Lord's Day. Uh, I, I think that's that's true. I don't Christian, I would, Christian Sabbath. Yeah, I'm not all that fond of the word Sabbath because I remember one of our churches up in the Highlands. You know, the notice board said Sabbath services. So you know, I've got visions of some family up from London waiting on Saturday morning at eleven o'clock for you know the the the, the church to to begin. Um, yeah. I guess where I differ, so I I do believe there is a Lord's Day. I do believe that's a thing. Um, I don't believe it is the Christian Sabbath in that sense. Um, Certainly not in a sense that my Sabbatarian, so I was brought up Sabbatarian um, uh, of of the... uh, the older and stricter form okay. uh and i guess i've i've moved away from that um but yeah I'd, I'd still see a space for the lord's day but ultimately i would see the lord's day as there for meeting together that's primarily the day that was set aside for that i don't think scripture gives us a vast amount beyond what we do when we meet together that the lord's day must entail that would be my broad view <clears throat> okay in- interesting i mean uh, i could see this podcast going on for hours and hours and hours there's something uh because i love your writing i love your podcast i love the sort of issues that, that you raise podcast by the way Stephen's podcast is called building jerusalem and connected to that there is uh, a blog tell us you, you do that with someone don't you um so my blog is just me um and that's the main thing that I do. Um, and then the podcast is a weekly thing uh, that I do with uh, a former Anglican uh, who is now uh, an independent planter up in Rochdale, which is literally the next borough up from us. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that I wanted to chat to you about is on my mind just now. Um, you know, I, c- I can see in a few years' time the, the Stephen Neal Centre for Urban Evangelism <laughs> and, uh, and and you you invite me to become a fellow, wouldn't you? You know, uh, because you, you wanted to be inclusive. Big debate uh, last week of the Tim Keller Center for Public Apologetics has raised a, a big debate out there about names and celebrity in the evangelical church. You know, you you hear about a conference and it's the same old, same old. 
Um, maybe it's because I don't know. We 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 are we are crusty Brits here. Stephen, have you any thoughts about this increasing celebrity culture and evangelicalism? I, I, as an up and coming celebrity yourself, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm so well known now. Uh, you had to introduce me, um, but the, I w- I wasn't a big fan of it. I don't think naming stuff after people is usually a very good idea. Um, I don't think it's always wrong. I guess my questions would be: Why are you naming it after this person, and what are you hoping to achieve through it? So, for example, I'm a trustee of a, um, something called Medhurst Ministries which is named after Thomas Medhurst. Now, you could, if you ask us why it's named after him, it's not because we're venerating him particularly. He is not the important thing. He was a, stu- he was a working class man. He was a student of Spurgeon's. He went around preaching the gospel and because his middle class congregation didn't really like it, uh, they asked him to stop. And Spurgeon had to go and have a word with him and said, look, you've got two choices. You either stop or I'm going to have to train you. And he said, well, if you want me to stop, you'll have to chop my head off. Uh, And so uh, you're going to have to train me. And that's what he did. And that's what set up Spurgeon's college. So we've named Medhurst Ministries after him, not as a veneration of him, but because he he just exemplifies what we're aiming to do with working class people. I I see that as different to naming something in honor of somebody. Uh, I just think it's unhelpful I think if you want your your ministry to be associated with Christ and the gospel, naming it after a bloke is not particularly helpful anyway. And I think if you're naming it after a living person, you're not helping that person particularly. I'm not saying Tim Keller particularly is going to get puffed yeah. up with pride with it. Yeah. I'm sure I'm sure he's very grounded and not like that. But the reality is, I think you're hardly helping him avoid that by naming it after him. You've got no idea what may or may not happen in his ministry anyway. I think you're setting himself up for issues, even if it's after dead blokes, to be honest with you. You don't always know what's going to get unearthed later. Yeah. If you want fruit from your ministry to continue, apart from that bloke, really linking it in that tight way, just it just doesn't strike me as clever or wise or even that valuable. Yeah. Do you think a celebrity is a thing? I mean, isn't there a... Is, is there a difference between having really gifted communicators who rise to the top? Is that, is that a good thing? Or are we aping the world with what I keep coming back to as a celebrity culture? I don't think we have a celebrity culture in the UK evangelical church because we're not important enough anymore. So I think if we were ever going to have celebrities here, that would have been back in the day when Lloyd-Jones was at... Lloyd-Jones and Stott. And Stott, exactly. Since the 60s, which is long before my lifetime... um, I don't think we've got a celebrity culture here. If you, We don't have big-name theologians, big-name preachers, and the one or two that do become big tend to become big once they've gone over to the States and, and make a name for themselves over there. So I don't think we have that issue so much here. Um, I'm minded to believe we might have it if we were more important than we are, but we're not. So the Lord happily keeps us from that, I think. I think in the States, it's definitely a thing. Okay, that's really quite interesting. I mean, when I'm trying to think of a British preacher who could preach and attract a congregation of one, two thousand. Uh, again, I'm old enough to have heard Lloyd Jones preach. I heard him preach three times, packed congregations. Do, do you think the fact that we don't have a figure like that in the UK is a sign of health or a sign of illness? I just think it's a thing. Um, 
I think we we've had big name theologians from Britain. Time was that the biggest, best known theologians in the world, or some of them at least, were coming from the UK, Scotland, at least the UK. Scotland. <laughs> All right. All right. But what what I would say is you certainly for 60 years or so, that has not been the case here. If you want a big name theologian these days, you you go to America. That is where most of the well-known folks are. All I think that is, I don't think it's a sign of health or, um, or disease. I just think it's a thing that comes with that reality. So I think it was possible people like Stott and Packer and and um, Lloyd-Jones and others like them might have turned into celebrities of their day, might have been puffed up, might have come with all those sorts of things that we see now. It's just we don't have those people here really now. Whereas I think in the States, you've got dozens of those sorts of people and you could have that sort of thing, you know, multiplied n- numerous times. And to be honest, the the nature of their culture is such that they're not shy about doing those sorts of things. It's just, it's a partly a cultural expression of that as well. And I just think those things combine together to make it more prevalent over there. But I, I think we'd be lying to ourselves if we said it wouldn't happen here if we had those sorts of people. It's just that we don't. Yeah. And, and do you think at the local church level, I mean, in your congregation, Bethel Oldham, uh, you know, if if you had one of the big celebrity preachers over, would they probably say, "Well, uh, our Steve's as good as that guy"? I mean, what do you think? Would, would they? Are you asking me whether I'm a better preacher than Tim <laughs> Keller? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no. Do, do you think, like, if you had Keller in Bethel Oldham, would would you would more of your local folk turn up? No uh, one, no one would know who he was. Yeah, I yeah. mean the. The Muslims in my community, the idea that any of them have heard of Tim Keller is nuts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, The white working class lads on the council estate wouldn't really know who he was. He's not an, a feature. Half the Christians in my church wouldn't know who he was. I mean, my church is a third Iranian, Farsi-speaking Iranian. I mean, they don't know who he is. Yeah. Um, most of them have been Christians 10 minutes. Yeah. Uh, and even the the white Brits who are Christians in my church, some of them will have heard of him. Yeah. And, and I, I don't think any of them are clamouring for him to come and preach for us if that was on the cards, which it's not. But um, I don't think there's like a massive appetite to get a well-known bloke in anyway. Yeah, yeah. Other big preachers are available, of course. Um, I want to talk a little bit about churches and small churches. I think your church is around about 40, 50 people. Do you have a, a desire to grow, would would you like to see the church up at 200? It depends what you mean. I think, so, would I like us to grow? Yes, because growth is, growth is good, and I think it can be seen as a dirty thing, but it's not. We want people to convert, and if we are converting people, we will grow. And actually, I don't think uh, transfer growth is quite the dirty thing some people think it is. I think sometimes that is a good thing. We've had people join us because they've come from very unhealthy churches. Yeah, I agree. And having read the word, have become convinced, actually, I need to be somewhere more healthy. Now, we haven't done anything to get that. We just happened to be the place that was providing what they needed. Um, And I don't think that's wrong. And so, do I want to see growth? The answer to that is Yes, I think that's a good thing. Do I want to be a church of 200? Well, 
for one, we wouldn't fit him in our building, so that's not going to be that helpful. But two, if we did ever get to, say, 200, I don't have a problem with us being that size, but I would have a problem with us staying that size. Because my view would be, once you get to a certain size and you have a certain number of people, I cannot see good arguments why you wouldn't go and plant somewhere that needs another church. So that would be my view. I don't have a problem with places being 200, and I don't think there's a biblical ground for saying you must be this size or that size, so I don't want to get hung up about it. But my inclination would be to say, if you've got to a certain size and you are functioning perfectly happily and perfectly well as you are, then why wouldn't you go and plant? I'm more inclined to plant than I am to extend my building. I think that's probably the the safest way to put it. Yeah, so in your context, that would work. What are the pros and cons of a small church? You can move quickly, generally speaking. Um, We, yeah, we we get stuff done. We pick ministries up and drop them pretty quickly um, as and when we feel they are working or no longer working. So, you can always feel it's quite um, quite dynamic in that sense, in a, in a good way. Um, there's a lot of manoeuvrability. I think there's an intimacy amongst the, the members. So everyone in the church knows everybody else. Mm. You know, there isn't anyone who would go, I don't even know their name. You know, ev- everyone knows people. Uh, and so I think that's a good thing. Uh, I think you, it's very easy to see when certain people are overstretched. You can... I think you can hide away that a lot of ministry is done by a small number of people in a much bigger church because you can see so much ministry going on. Whereas if you know everybody intimately and you can know whether they are being asked to do a third or a fourth or a fifth ministry because yeah. we need to do it, you can see those things more more easily. So I think there's some some of the pros. Uh, some of the cons, I mean, the most obvious con is obviously the um, the people resource, isn't it? I could give you ministry lists as long as you are, the stuff we could be doing that we aren't doing. And we're not doing it because we don't want to. We're not doing it because we don't have the people to man it and run it and do it. And I just think resource is your biggest issue when you're small. Never enough people, never enough money. I mean, folks say that you should be running a church where there's always pressure. You've always got aspirations for 110% of the budget. You've always got aspirations for a little bit more than your people capacity. Yeah, I, I I think as a as a principle. I mean, again, I wouldn't want to push it, but um, I think as a principle, that's right. I think we are we're more likely to be in prayer when we feel like we're under pressure, when we're small, and when we don't have money. You know, I I could see even in my community, I could see a hundred people converted. We wouldn't be a self sustaining church because the people we're seeing saved don't have the kind of money that's going to support a ministry, going to support a church there. So we. We are constantly on our knees praying. We are constantly looking for partnerships with other churches. We are constantly looking to work beyond ourselves because otherwise we we couldn't function. Yeah. Do you guys need external funding every year? Uh, yeah. So it, depending on what it is, you, usually we we raise kind of pots of money for things. So you might go, I need money for my salary, so we do that. Um, and then you might be fine for a few years. On, with that pot of money for that thing. Um, we're looking to appoint a second worker at the moment. We've got a pot of money for that that we can't touch uh, for anything other than that, but you can we can raise money for a second worker in that way. And then you just got general running costs. But we've just worked very, very hard to build up partnerships with the churches. So much like a missionary would, really, we just go around people we know, churches we know, people we're in fellowship with, and just say, look, if you've got any excess at all you know 
could you bung it in our direction so we can we can function? And by God's grace, he's he's always provided what we needed. What sort of second worker are you thinking of going for? <laughs> yeah, this is a, a point of, uh, <laughs> discussion. of discussion. Yeah, because we're not actually we're we're purposefully not asking for a say an assistant pastor or a co-pastor or anything. Now, if someone applied who would be who would be an adequate and appropriate co-pastor, that's what we'd appoint them as. If someone applies and we really think they're the right person for us, but really they're not going to be an elder yet, they're going to be a, a gospel worker who's going to expand the ministry, that's what we'll appoint. So we're not actually bothered about the job title. We're more bothered about having the right person who is the right fit we can train someone up to be an elder. That's not a problem. We can also take someone in who's been an elder before and welcome onto an eldership team relatively quickly, if that's appropriate. We're most bothered about the person and their character. And really, we've always done this with people where if you came into my church, for example, I wouldn't say, look, here's all the jobs I want you to do. Get on and do those. I would say to you, what do you like doing? What do you what do you see as the gaps in our church? How do you see yourself serving and expanding ministry here? Effectively, I get you to write your own job and then say, right, go and do that. Yeah. The gaps, of course, would be singing psalms and baptizing babies. But moving quickly, moving quick. <laughs> so moving quickly. So are, are you not thinking of, like, would you think of an evangelist? Would you think of, like, a girl who would be a family worker? Um, would you think of a youth person? Uh, or, or, or have you got a category in mind? No, we, we don't, um, because we don't operate that way. So I'm the pastor of the church, but I do a lot of evangelism, and I do a lot of discipleship, and I do a lot of teaching, and I do a lot of setting up the church on a Sunday morning <laughs> and sticking chairs out and dealing with... So if that's my job, then asking someone to come and be a women's worker, for example, well, that'd be great, but ultimately you're still going to be putting out chairs and doing evangelism, doing discipleship and doing all of that. So ultimately what I call you seems immaterial. What seems to matter more is what are you like? Do you fit with the culture of our church? Are you theologically astute? Can you teach people? Do you know the gospel? Have you got things that you could do that we're not currently doing that would help reach out into the town? We're more interested in those types of things yeah. than we are about exactly the kind of person. But I think we're not, we know we're not looking for a woman's worker because we already have somebody effectively doing that role anyway. And also we are looking for someone who at least could grow into an eldership role at some point, if not um, step into it quite quickly. So again, we, we, we've got certain boundaries, but exactly what they're going to do, I don't know. All I can tell them is you will be expected to do some evangelism. You will be expected to do discipleship. You probably will do some preaching. You probably will do some leading but exactly what form all of that takes and what you're most excited about and how you will expand the ministry. Well, it's a bit of a make your own adventure thing, isn't it? Okay. Well, my job title in the Free Church of Scotland, which is a, it's a denomination of about 115 churches, is mission director. And one of the things that I do is help congregations with kind of development strategy. Sometimes they'll write a plan out. Do you guys... Have any thoughts about that? Have you got a strategy? Have you got a development plan? Is it something you'd consider or is it a big no-no or a big yes-yes? For for developing what? The, the work, I mean, the work of the church over the next, say, five years, which is the most common time frame. We don't, so we don't have a sort of set plan, if you know what I mean. I've, none of us have sat down and gone, right, here's our form that you know everyone's yeah. going to have. Um, 
but ultimately we we've got a pretty clear vision of what we think the church mm-hmm. needs to be doing um which might be considered quite broad you can look at our website and see what it is if you but it's written down somewhere yeah yeah we we have it we have a vision on our church website this is what we're about and we have a set of values going and these are the sort of buffers if you like onto how we're doing it the rest of it is very much they're your boundaries that's what we're aiming to do. The rest of it, we are very, very loose towards because ministry in our community is very, very quick and it turns around. So you might have a ministry that sets up that goes great guns for a bit and then it's it's just not functioning properly. It's not working anymore. And so we just look at it and we get rid of it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes um, ministries are going really well and are growing and are clearly making headway. Well, you want to keep hold of those things, don't you? And you want to keep encouraging them. And sometimes you lose people from your church for various reasons. They move on. Sometimes you get new people in and their skills aren't all the same and their interests aren't all the same. The things that they ought to be doing aren't the same. And so you have to constantly reassess because really what we're doing is I'm not interested in having a church where people have to come in and fit into a slot because we've decided at some point that's going to operate and that's what's going to happen. I'm much more interested in saying, these are the people the Lord has given us. These are the people uh, with their particular skills and interests and jobs and whatever it is they do. And I want to use them most fully to the glory of God. And I want to help them see themselves how they can be most useful in the kingdom. And so that's my vision. And I can't really put too many uh, stakes in the ground on that because who knows who the Lord's going to give you, right? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I mean, we've almost done 40 minutes here. The time flies when you're enjoying yourself. Just when we're coming into land, um, we're recording this. It's Wednesday 15th of uh, February. It wouldn't be going out for another 14 days. The Asbury uh, University in Kentucky, Steve, You've you've heard a little bit about it. Any initial thoughts about the the stuff that's going on at Asbury? What should we look out for? How should we, this side of the pond, react to that stuff? Should we speak? Should we be silent? I think you can speak if you want, um, and you can hold your own counsel if you want. I don't think it really matters. I don't think many of us over here are actually well placed to comment on it at all at the moment. Anyway, it's not to say you can't comment or say anything like like we are now. Um, but, you know, I, I want to keep my own counsel a little bit because I don't really know what's going on, if I'm being honest. I've, I've seen about it, but only in the most general terms. Yeah, yeah. My, my initial impression is I don't have any reason specifically to doubt what is being said. So I'm, I'm happy to take it at face value and say, maybe there is something going on there. Maybe the spirit is at work there. Maybe the Lord is choosing to do something special there. But my ultimate underlying feeling is time will then tell, won't it? So I'm happy to take it at face value, but I'm also of the view we'll see. Time time will tell. Yeah, I think, you know, in the UK, in terms of revival or an awakening, whatever you want to call it, there's two equal and opposite errors. One is an obsession with revival. Um, Folk could just think about it constantly. The other one is what I call revival amnesia, that people have just forgotten about any possibility of it. So that that's where I'm... For, for the UK, yes, yeah, sure, we'd love to see God working in power, but God works in power through ordinary churches like Bethel Oldham or Oldham Bethel. God works through ordinary people. And yeah, that's right. That, no, that, I that. fully agree. No, I, I think... I don't... 
I, I think that's that would be my only caution. I'm I'm happy to take Asprey at face value at the moment, and I'm happy to say looks like the Lord's doing something, and I have no problem with that whatsoever. At the same time, I don't want that to diminish what people are doing in their small corner of the world unnoticed that doesn't appear in in the same way to be so great and so special and so different. Well, that's okay too. The Lord is still working miraculously, isn't he, in one person coming to faith in your church you've been plugging away with for 10 years. He's working as much there as he is when he saves a thousand people in one evening because that's what he's chosen to do, you know. And I just think, well, my theology sees the Lord having to work miraculously in both of those scenarios, and so I don't have a problem with either. Yeah, 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 great. <laughs> Stephen, that, that's been so helpful. We've covered so many issues this morning. I feel like we've run around the house opening some doors, looking into the the rooms, not having time to go right into the rooms and examine them, but we've seen through the doors. Uh, maybe it's just as well we didn't examine some of these rooms. So thank you so much. Again, just to remind our listeners that... Stephen's uh, podcast is Building Jerusalem, and there's a blog, or there's a blog and a podcast, depending on your priority. Uh, Google it, pray for the work in Oldham in north of England, and um, it's just so good to talk about good things to people of a very different tradition. Um, Thank you, listener, for listening to our podcast again in the second series of A Healthy Gospel Church podcast. We are thrilled to see that more and more folk are listening and engaging. Tell your friends about it. Save it on whatever platform you use for your podcast. Stephen, thank you for coming to Scotland and thank you for all that you do. Thanks for having me. 